I saw somebody recently who her doctor didn't do this kind of surgery, referred her to an oncologist who basically said, oh, I'm going to take everything out. And, and then I gave her options to preserve her uterus, which she was thought for her that was very important. And we did it. Surgery went well. Everything went fine. She was happy, had a good outcome in a minimally invasive fashion. But it took her uh, three tries to find someone who had the same vision as her. They're both first-class robotic surgeons, thought leaders and educators, top of their field in gynecological surgery. Today I talked to Dr. Richard Farnham and Dr. Mark Winter on the healthcare experience with Tom Glander. Good morning, Dr. Farnham. Glad you're here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and Dr. Winter, got you on the phone as well. All right. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rick. I'm excited to be here today and, and uh, to be sharing the platform with my very good friend, Dr. Richard Farnham, and uh, uh, this should be exciting. So how did you two meet? Uh, well, I mean, I guess I'll go. It's, it's one of those questions, if I get it wrong, am I in trouble? You know? So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know if your memory's the same as mine. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> we'll find out, yeah. Um, well, so, I mean, it was certainly through the world of robotic surgery. Um, my practice, uh, I started in 2009, uh, got into robotic surgery and, you know, I had the good fortune of getting really busy really early on and became identified as one of the leaders uh, for robotic gynecology. Um, you know, Mark and, uh, you know, some, several other of the, the pillars of robotic surgery uh, were already established. And, you know, basically I just got to ride on their coattails and come along for the ride. And, and, you know, we were able to, I think our first real big collaboration was a, a robotic research paper uh, that we had done for hysterectomy that showed, you know, distinct benefit for this technology um, that we published in 2016. Um, but I mean, it was just in that community, in that uh, kind of brain trust of all these thought leaders that would come together and share their experience. And really what drew me to robotics other than the technology is uh, so cutting edge is that the practitioners of robotics we're all very down to earth. Um, they all check their egos at the door and it was purely a collaborative experience. And it's something um, among surgeons that you don't always get to experience. And so, uh, you know, I, I just, I uh, became, I think Mark and I became fast friends and, and uh, you know, it, it's been a, a relationship that we've helped each other. Um, we've been able to, bounce ideas off of each other and, um, you know, we've become very close friends. Wow. That's, that kind of echoes what you said before Dr. Winter about uh, the collaborative framework. Yeah, it, it, it truly was a, a different environment compared to what we were used to before. And, and even with uh, both, both of us were very involved with laparoscopy before robotics, just straight stick with laparoscopy. And again, it was a different level of collaboration. But, but I'll remember, you know, one of the things about it as we were all kind of learning together mm -hmm. and 
uh, I was lucky enough, as was Rick, as he said, to be identified as, as uh, a thought leader and involved in teaching of robotic surgery to people throughout the country. And my, some of my, fav- my favorite times are when they put several of us in a room together and we just get to talk and, off script and talk about what we're doing and, and as you said, bounce ideas. And all, the, all of a sudden, my phone is, is full of numbers of, of a handful of select people who I feel very comfortable calling and something comes up or something unusual. Hey, do you have any ideas about this? Have you ever encountered that? So it's very, very collaborative on that level as well as research levels and putting projects together and whatnot. See, that's very encouraging to hear because I was always, and I know you are too, but as a nurse, you, the nurses tend to be the patient advocates and they're always trying to help them, teach them, whatever. And we're always looking at outcomes, right? I mean, we all look at outcomes. And when you have that kind of collaborative environment, the patient is always the beneficiary. Totally. And, and um, I know I do, and I know Rick does as well. We track our outcomes. So we, we have a, a very good sense of what we're doing as opposed to, you know, obviously we go by what the literature says as well, but we, we check ourselves and make sure we're doing at least that good, if not better, than results that are stated in the literature. Right. And Dr. Farnham, you, there in, uh, you're in El Paso, Texas. You, have, uh, you work with, what, the Texas Institute of Robotic Surgery. Is that something you put together? Um, so... You know, it's been honestly, if I, as I'm listening to Mark talk, I mean, it's really been a surreal experience over the last, yeah. you know, 10, 12 years. Um, you know, just just starting out uh, using this brand new technology, and um, through hard work and good fortune and and good friendships, you know, just rubbing shoulders with these ivory towers and, and being used in, you know, your name used in the same breath as, you know, the, the godfathers of robotics. And, and yeah. it's been pretty exciting. Yes. Um, but yeah, the Texas Institute um, is a collaboration through something, uh, one of the largest hospital corporations called HCA. It's actually based out of Austin, Texas. And we were, I guess, in El Paso, if you will, the first franchise of the, uh, the, uh, the Texas Institute. Um, and there are a number of other initiatives that we, in our own practices, and, you know, the Texas Institute is a good example of. Uh, there's a Genesis program that Intuitive uh, uh, is, is an in-house program where uh, and the goal of all of these with the data collection um, is to promote efficiency through economy of motion and eliminating redundancy. And if you can do those things, you're going to eliminate variability. And when you do that, you make your outcomes more reproducible and uh, invariably you'll actually get end up getting better outcomes because everybody's doing the same thing. And so as much as you can standardize uh, a process, uh, you know, whether it's flying a plane or doing a robotic surgery, um, you, you get closer and closer to that reproducible outcome. And, and I think that the Institute and um, 
as Mark mentioned, you know, he and I and about five other GYNs um, were charged fairly early on, like almost nine years ago, with educating all of the other surgeons that wanted to, to get on board and start using this technology. And one of the first lectures, I think uh, Mark was mentioned that, that he and I did together was, was down in celebration. I don't know if you remember that. Um, in this giant room, and we had, uh, it had to be several dozen surgeons, and, and we just got to um, take turns, play off each other, and it was uh, not much like we're doing now. <laughs> Some things never change. I do remember that, and I remember that in the span of half a day, we were able to put together an impromptu tissue extraction lab, which was one of the first of its kind at that time. And it, it was great. Wow. Yeah. You know what? You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, that was kind of just off the cuff. We, we just did yeah. that together. Yeah, yeah. So talking about tissue extraction, um, so that many people who are listening probably understand what morselation is. You have a device that actually, morselates let's say you're going to remove a fibroid and it's quite large let's say it's the size of a baseball and you can't pull it out through a steiny incision so you've got to cut it into little pieces and then you pull those little pieces individually through a portal uh, it's called morselation and when i was working in the business our hospital didn't like morselation in fact the whole thing came down the pike that it could possibly spread cancer and that kind of stuff so a lot of them surgery centers at least wouldn't even allow it. What's your thought process on morselation at this time? Dr. Winter, what do you think? Well, um, it's been a very interesting road. And, and this is kind of cool because uh, Rick and I have taken a little bit different approaches based on what tools we've had in hand. Um, this all started in 2013 when somebody who actually was an anesthesiologist, unfortunately, had, had a procedure. Uh, it was actually a hysterectomy where a very large uterus was cut into pieces and had uh, a bad cancer in one of the fibroids, something called the leiomyosarcoma. And this is a bad cancer to have no matter what you do to it, no matter how you take it out, no matter, no matter what happens. And, and uh, she unfortunately passed away, uh, I think four years later, but in, in that set off a chain just because of really how uh, forceful her and her husband have been and people they knew uh, where it was looked at by the FDA, they came out with certain numbers of how, how often we see these cancers and their numbers of, of the bad cancer was, was a little bit under one in 500, which seemed like a much bigger number than what we had all been taught, much bigger number than what our experience would tell us. But then we find out these papers were based on only certain women referred to certain centers to have minimally invasive surgeries, not looking at, it's, they weren't population-based studies where you look at how many women with fibroids uh, for instance, choose shrinkage procedures where, where they, they'll, they'll put coils into the blood vessels to shrink the fibroids or uh, other types of shrinkage procedures. Women who uh, chose to have fibroids, and I have several patients now, have fibroids. They're not bothering them. We watch them, make sure they're not growing significantly. 
and choose not to have any surgical intervention. And the very many women out there, which is over half of the women out there, who actually have fibroids and don't know they have fibroids. So very different ways of looking at numbers. And that just set off such a chain reaction in, in our society, the way things are, that these morselators were taken off the shelf uh, most most around, a lot of places around the country. Uh, Rick can, can speak to his area, what, what they developed as an alternative. In uh, my neck of the woods, we were still able to use morselators, but we wanted to do them, use them in a, in a safer and enclosed environment. So that way, if we did run into one of those rare cancers, it would minimize the amount of spread of tissue. So that, that's what, since 2015, that's what I've been doing, is uh, we, we actually put a camera into a, an additional side port into an in in, uh, entrapment pouch or a containment pouch, and I'm able to watch as I morselate in the pouch minimizes any tissue spread. And I think that's a good thing in that it minimizes the chance of any spread. In my practice, I had seen a couple of times where some special fibroids, even though they weren't cancerous, would implant in other areas and grow almost like cancer is only the benign growth where we'd have to go back in and, and deal with that. So this has uh, basically made that problem go away. And even though it's a bit more hassle, I, I think it's better for the patient and worked out fine. And, and we've kind of worked out ways to do this in a relatively efficient way. In your experience, Dr. Farnham? Yeah, I mean, that, uh, both Tom and Mark, that's, that's a great description of uh, what this experience has been. Um, you know, for the listeners, I mean, fibroids are, are basically just these um, accumulation of smooth muscle cells in the muscle wall of the uterus. They're an abnormal growth, and they're almost never cancer. In fact, before the FDA statement in April of 2014, the best available data had estimated uh, the prevalence one in 2,000. I mean, that is is super rare. I mean, that's the type of thing where a surgeon may encounter once in an entire career. And the jarring thing um, was that the numbers that the FDA used to conclude that this device was not safe, they were so drastically different and the problem with estimating prevalence of a very rare condition is the study has to be so large you have to have so many people to capture those one in two thousand type of phenomena and as mark said the error that they made was they only included papers where someone already had a lyomyer sarcoma but what about all of the other papers where, you know, maybe there was a thousand people in the study, but just by chance alone, there wasn't a Lyomyer sarcoma. So they didn't include all of those cases that should have been in the denominator. And they came out with a number one in 498 for uh, Lyomyer sarcoma, one in 352 for uterine sarcoma. So it really shocked a lot of us. And 
following that, um, Dave Olive's group published, I think in 2016, um, a study that showed, and this is the largest study ever done, that the real instance was about one in 2000, which is what we thought it had been all along. But the damage was already done. The industry had already stopped making the device available um, in almost every circumstance. As Mark pointed out, you know, there are a few places where it was still allowed under, you know, certain circumstances. But for most surgeons, the, the, the dilemma and the, um, the issue that came up was they had to choose. Do we actually start doing open surgery again? Do we start exposing our patients to a three times higher risk of complications and uh, just by virtue of opening, or do we stick to our guns and we do um, a minimally invasive approach? And to the credit, the surgeons that got stuck in the middle here innovated, and they figured out a way to do it. And as Mark uh, was saying, we um, developed a, a way to put a sterile containment bag into the abdomen through one of the little ports that we use put the specimen, uh, either the fibroid or the, or the large uterus, into that bag, and then, um, as he's describing, still power more slate in the bag, or, as a lot of us uh, began doing, bringing the bag out through the belly button, and then actually just by hand um, cutting the specimen. Now, of course, we have to enlarge that belly button incision a little bit, but still it's maybe three centimeters, which is uh, eons better than, you know, a laparotomy or an open incision. Right. And, you know, to, to the credit of, of a lot of, uh, you know, people that had done good work uh, and partnered with industry, we, we developed a way to still allow our patients, give them a minimally invasive option while preserving and preventing the spread of cancer in that extremely unlikely scenario. Okay, I have they, to jump. I have to. Had it. I have to jump in and ask. This just seems crazy to me. I mean, when you do any kind of research, you don't look at five hundred people and then say we're going to shut down a whole industry because these people got it. I mean, if they were only looking at the leiomyosarcoma population, why would the FDA do something like that? And the FDA doesn't so, have surge so, practicing surgeons. They're, they're not in the field actually right. doing the work. It, 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 it's been a very, very interesting phenomenon because what's how, I'll get to your question in a second, but it's what's so interesting about it. In some ways we're better off because as, as Rick said, we, we innovate, you we innovate, figure out right. ways to do things as good or, or better or become more efficient. So it really hasn't hurt us or hurt our patients to those of us that, how do you say are devoted to the field and innovate, but unfortunately there are a number of, uh, and, and unfortunately a larger number than I, I would like it to be of surgeons out there who said, you know, I don't want to learn something new. I don't want to take that. I'm too busy doing X, Y, and Z. Um, got a busy practice, delivering babies, whatever else they're doing. Right. And they went back to doing more open surgery. So if you look, at the last five years data, <clears throat> excuse me, you're going to see a, a, an increase in the open rate of surgery for, especially for taking fibroids out 
right. and, and a, a little bit more for hysterectomy. And just as Rick said, you're going to see an increased rate of complications because of it. So that's the unintended consequence of what the FDA did. They, they made things worse, not for necessarily our pa- my patients or Rick's patients, but for a number of women out there, they're having not the outcome they deserve because of this. Why did that happen? Um, politics, public pressure. You had, even though it's rare, you had a lot of people coming out saying, I had that cancer, right? right. And you didn't have maybe as many doctors explaining it as well as they should have or even knowing how to get to the FDA to do that. They, they just had a number of, just this year, they reconvened, and several of us wrote letters to them trying to explain this position to them, and we're, we're still waiting to hear uh, if, they, if they have any changes to their recommendations. So, well, if I, if I can go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to, um, yeah, that's, I mean, Mark is describing kind of exactly uh, what I would describe as the collateral damage of, of uh, but I would point out two things. Um, you know, as Mark was saying, the data, so in, in June of 2018 in JAMA surgery, um, they actually published the results. So after this ban in 2014, so four years later, they collected the data over that time, and they found that, in fact, major complications for hysterectomy rose from 1.9 to 2.4%, minor complications from 27 to 3.3%, and... Uh, the proportion of abdominal hysterectomies rose from 37 to 43%. So um, we knew that these types of things could happen if you took away the tools from the toolbox. And as a result, these things, in fact, did happen. The problem, there was a device panel hearing. I don't think Mark went. I know I didn't go, but um, our, our yeah. good friend, uh, Dr. Advincula, was there. And you know, he said he would. He would. He went to that panel in 2014, and he he was able to speak to the FDA and tell them, you know, look, this is the data. These are the risks. Yes, there can be damage from morselating a, a a cancer, but there's going to be way more damage. You'll see because more people are going to start doing open surgery, and unfortunately, that came to pass. But also, patients, patients who suffered. Um, this complication of a, a um, morselation of a cancer also presented at the at this device panel hearing, and, and these are people. I mean, these are people. You see them; they're suffering, and unfortunately, um, you know, the I think the information was convoluted because, as Mark pointed out earlier, it doesn't really. This is one of the most aggressive cancers there are, sarcoma, and unfortunately, we don't have a good treatment for it. Um, and yes, you know, they're probably, it is worse if the cancer spreads, but it's already a really, really bad cancer. And I think the messaging, unfortunately, got confused that somehow the morselation caused cancer. And, and it created a lot of confusion. And unfortunately, um, we actually see in the data the result of pulling, taking this tool away, actually did increase morbidity and mortality. So that's, that's, so, so uh, let me add one more thing yeah. that, you know, I don't know. And, and I think Rick could attest to this as well. How many times in your practice do you see someone come in 
who's got a fairly good sized fibroid, a large fibroid, and said, Hey, I'm getting a second opinion. I went to Dr. So and so, and they said it's way too big to do uh, minimally invasive, and I need an open surgery. And and it's not even close to way too big. And it's it just it's just something I see all the time in my practice, but because of yeah, I agree. I agree. So that's see, there, and I is looking on as a, as a third party here would say to myself, this isn't right. This is bad information. We can't make good decisions with bad information, but it happens all the time in healthcare, not just in your recommendations to patients with surgery, but in how patients are actually taken care of on the floors and the wards and the decisions that are made. How do we get beyond this? I, I know this robotic surgery, uh, surgery is in its infancy, really. Would you both agree to that? It is very relatively new on the scope oh, of it, it, medicine. It, yeah. Very much, very much. So a lot of these things you could say, well, we can attribute these decisions to the infancy of this thing. And if we look, you know, 50 years from now, it'll be very different. 10 years from now, it'll be very different. Um, but how much does the, the emotion of humanity come into this and impact the decisions that are made? It seems to me that's a pretty big part of it. I Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I think... Um... You know, we, you know, we have to appreciate and understand and value and respect uh, an individual life. Um, but we also have to have a 30,000 foot view and understand that policy decisions that are made um, impact things adversely. And the almost, I mean, it's, it's a challenge because Mark and I have spent years, like really the last six years, We've flown around the country, around the world, as much and as often as, as our practice allows us, trying to teach, trying to teach uh, techniques on still doing minimally invasive surgery, but also doing it safely in a way that the extraction is done in a in a containment process. And um, there are options. You know, the ironic thing is there are options. You can put it in a bag, extract it. Um, you know, Mark is, is uh, you know, doing research on this um, uh, new concept of, a, of an in-bag morselation. And, you know, there's no need for it. There's just no need for people to go back to open surgery. And, you know, we just need to, I think, spend more time on education. And um, honestly, at this I'm just having fun with you guys, but if this podcast <laughs> reach, reaches one person and we save one life, you know, this is, this is well worth our time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's going to yeah. reach well, yeah. way more than one person. I can guarantee that. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but that's, that's how we feel being involved with the teaching part. If, if we can teach techniques or mindsets, checklists, ways to approach a problem uh, that, that'll, that'll improve someone else's skills. And then they'll, imp they'll teach that to someone else. We, we can hopefully make a, a very big impact to improving patient's care. That's a big deal to both of us. Say that. Okay. I mean, if I, if I could, uh, if I could summarize, I would, I mean, I would just literally say two things. I would say, uh, I would echo what Mark said. If you're a patient 
and someone had said your fiber is too big or you're not a candidate, you need to get a second opinion because in almost 100% of cases, um, you know, whereas it may not be a candidate in that individual's hand, someone can provide that for you and they can give you a minimally basic solution. And, and for the surgeon, I would say, you know, we are out there, we're teaching these courses, um, you know, your patients deserve the best. And, uh, you know, if it's, you know, taking two days to take a course and, you know, learn what is a relatively simple technique, I think Mark would agree. Um, it, it's a, it's a good investment in time to offer that to your patients. T t totally. Uh, let me ask you this, Rick, how many patients have you had to open in the last year? So we, uh, you know, as Mark mentioned earlier, we, we track our numbers and, um, you know, this is not patting myself on the back. This has nothing to do with this. This is data. So the last time I opened was November of 2018. Um, but on average, I'll open about one every 600 cases. And again, that's, you know, that's not bravado. That, that's just data. And, and you know, um, Mark and I uh, have a pure surgery practice and we have a high volume and you know, we're going to be able to kind of just get more reps at doing the surgery. Um, but it's not something that is unattainable. I mean, anybody can offer with the right training, anybody can offer these types of options for their patient and give them the best possible minimally invasive outcome. Yeah. And I, I would, I would echo that uh, same thing. I think the last time I opened somebody was 2018. Um, so it's 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 not just you or me. There's there's a number of us that are um, with devoted GYM practices who are are doing similar work. I really like the idea of like what you were saying, getting a second opinion. Uh, what about the idea of a third opinion? Does anybody ever go that far? Yeah, oh my, right. yeah I'll see sometimes third. after for a third or fourth opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw I saw somebody recently who. Her doctor didn't do this kind of surgery, referred her to an oncologist who basically said, oh, I'm going to take everything out. And, and then I gave her options to preserve her uterus, which she was thought for her that was very important. And we did it. Surgery went well. Everything went fine. She was happy, had a good outcome in a minimally invasive fashion. But it took her uh, three tries to find someone who had the same vision as her. Uh, so tenacity. Well, and I, I think that's a very good point. What Mark said right there, because I, I don't, I, I truly believe that all the professionals I've worked with in my career are good, caring, altruistic people. And I, even those I've disagreed with. And yeah. I just believe that they're going to offer the patient what they feel will lead to the best outcome for their patient. And in their hands, that might mean an open surgery. In their hands, that might mean a hysterectomy as opposed to a uterine preserving option. Um, if you're comfortable with your doctor and that aligns with your vision, absolutely, I would suggest doing it. Um, if, if you feel and you've educated yourself and you truly believe that that is the best uh, option. But as Mark said, if that doesn't align with your vision, and somebody might come to see Mark or me, 
and what we offer may not align with their vision. Believe it or not, I had a patient four years ago that demanded an open hysterectomy. And I went over the benefits of minimally invasive surgery. I showed her the literature. We had three or four visits. And ultimately, we agreed to disagree. And I referred her to a patient, to a uh, colleague of mine, um, just because I, I just didn't feel that I would be doing and serving this patient in the best way that I could. I, w I would have done the exact same thing.